what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. I've become a bit obsessed with the concept of sense-making. Really, I've been obsessed with it my whole life. I just didn't have a name for it. Sense-making is the process of taking sensory information and situational knowledge and creating a framework for meaning and decision-making. Okay, I know, that sounds pretty heady, but really, we do it all the time. Imagine you venture into the kitchen after a long day in your home office, and the kitchen is torn apart. You see dishes stacked on the counter, cupboard doors open, and pantry items covering the table. You smell a slightly chemical citrus scent in the air. Your spouse isn't there to ask what the heck is going on, and quickly you deduce that they got the idea to deep clean the kitchen and had to step away for a bit. The job is almost finished, but there's still a ways to go and you are hungry for dinner. So you take the initiative to order pizza. That's sense-making. You went from what the heck is going on here to dinner is on its way in less than 60 seconds. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that makes business make sense for small business owners. See what I did there? Anyhow, I've always got my eye out for a new way to make sense of the world. A framework, a script, a visualization, a map, a diagram. I love these tools, and I make good use of them in my own head. But my sense-making tools don't always make it out of my head. Now, in the last year or so, I've really started to recognize that I have a unique strength for explaining how I make sense of things and that my frameworks are helpful for others, too. Score another one for neurodivergence. That said, it's taken some practice to find my public sense-making rhythm. The way I write and speak has evolved quite a bit in a short time, at least from my perspective. But the other thing that's shifted for me is the ability to turn ideas into visualizations and graphic representations. I never really thought of myself as very good at visual art or graphic design, even though I wished I was. Then... I had a conversation with writer, developmental editor, and communications consultant Chris Windley. Chris told me all about how she'd been learning how to draw to support her writing, and that helped her manage her attention and focus as she navigates ADHD. I don't think I can overstate how much this got my wheels turning. It wasn't until January that I really got to work on the project, finding ways to illustrate my ideas, but once I got started... I couldn't stop. (laughs) Here, eight months later, and almost a year after that conversation, I feel like I have a really powerful tool in my toolkit, and that that tool leverages a strength I had only been using at half power. This episode is a rebroadcast, but if you follow my non-podcast work, I think it'll have new meaning for you now as it does for me. And regardless, I think it's really encouraging to hear how Chris has intentionally, methodically introduced this new skill into the way she works. Now, let's find out what works for Chris Windley. Chris Windley, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. This is great. Absolutely. All right. So let's just start at the very beginning. You are a writer by trade, by business, and you are here today to talk about learning illustration skills. How did how in the world did you land on deciding that you wanted to learn how to become an illustrator? I mean, it's kind of like the story of the fish learning to fly. <laughs> uh, it's not something that is innate to me. Writing, I mean, I was always a reader. I was always the kid that like had a story, I had thousands of stories to tell. So writing to me was really natural. It's the way I communicate. But the world and other people don't cater to the way I like to communicate. So there's a lot of people who really require visual pieces to make understanding complete. And I tried the whole photography thing, and it's just not something that I really am good at. I think it's beautiful. I love it. It's so amazing. People can do a good job at it. But it's just not something that I'm great at. And I didn't have 
um, sort of that initial success that would give me the patience to keep trying. So I gave up because I'm a bit of a baby if I don't get immediate gratification when I'm learning things. Mm -hmm. So, so illustration, um, it made sense for me because although I, I could say I'm a visual learner, I'm not, I have ADHD, so I don't have the ability to actually visualize things. So I don't, I can't hold a picture in my head. Maybe that's why photography doesn't work well for me because it's just something that my brain is like hard no. But I always have, when I'm learning things, doodled things on paper so that I could better understand them. And because I had a really late diagnosis, usually ladies do, I was 38 Mm -hmm. when I was diagnosed. I thought that I was a visual learner because I was always drawing little doodles and pictures. Turns out opposite, even though I'm a certified teacher and I taught for like a decade and did curriculum development at a school for people with learning disabilities, (laughs) still completely missed my own, which is a bit humbling. Um, But yeah, so this is not me being a visual learner. It's me trying to compensate for the inability to visualize. So I did it on paper. So I have this kind of like doodly ability already. So it gives me that kind of immediate gratification of like, yeah, no, you're not absolutely useless at this at the beginning. So there's little wins. And that kind of keeps me going when I get to a place where it's like, you no, know, I can't actually make a human face look like anything other than a pile of sludge. But I can draw a mean mushroom, you know, like I can. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's why I think I landed on illustration is that I had that initial ability or that tendency to kind of take things and make them visual with really, really simplistic drawings. And it works nicely sort of on the output because I talk a lot about serious things and I talk about like brain science and I talk about global politics and I talk about feminism and communication online. And I talk like, this is not cheerful stuff all the time. So Mm -hmm. having really simplistic and cute and fun and like, care like almost like a caricature of the seriousness of the subject matter it offsets in an interesting way like that dichotomy is cool and it also means that you can read a thing that's tough and you know me telling you like no you have to cite your sources writers like stop being lazy democratizing (laughs) journalism is destroying us all um but it's okay because there's a cute picture of like a coffee mug (laughs) and it's sort of (laughs) offsets that really um heavy stuff I guess so it works as far as me being that like difficult immediate gratification desiring person and also it really helps I feel with when I'm trying to communicate difficult things yeah I love that I was going to ask you what are some of the kinds of things that you are adding that visual component in to talk about. Um, And so thank you for uh, volunteering that before I got to the actual question. But I'm curious if you could give us an example. Um, Can you talk about maybe a piece that you've written recently or something that you've tried to teach recently uh, and how you incorporated a visual element into that, an illustrated element? Sure. Yeah. Actually, there's something I did um, maybe a year or two ago that suddenly the visuals are getting a lot of traction. I think that it was a pin that somebody like got into or something and they ended up using it for, um, they, there was some kind of a conference or something that was going on and it was about imposter syndrome. And I had, it was just a sort of a doodly kind of like I do real simplistic. I'm no, you know, Picasso, but it was like a side subsection of a face with, um, sections inside like an infographic Mm-hmm. describing components of imposter syndrome for women. And so tons of people I've seen it shared recently again on Instagram, like every now and then I get a little notification that someone else is sharing it. So that's something again, like imposter syndrome, even talking about it stresses us out <laughs> and like talking about it. People respond often by being like, yeah, but am I actually good enough to have imposter syndrome? Like we don't even, we have imposter syndrome about our imposter syndrome. Right. So, so it was one of those pieces where I think like the cutesy, you know, pink and teal picture of a brain might've helped. Um, but recently, I mean, there's something that I'm getting ready to publish this week that is about resistance for writers mm. and this feeling of, of being unable to start a creative task. And it's something that's even more 
of an important thing for me to kind of try to muddle through myself since I realized that the feelings that because ADHD, one of the things that we have a lack of is tonic dopamine, which is the go-go juice. So it's like mm-hmm. normal brains, normal is a weird word, but like typical brains have a, a sort of well of dopamine just waiting for you to have something to do. <laughs> and and that ability to visualize the task being done, which gives you extra dopamine. Mm. And I'm sitting here with this like empty well of dopamine and I can't visualize the finished thing. So I don't get that shot. So I need to really figure out a way to give myself shots of dopamine to do stuff in a healthy way without like last minute pressure. That's not dopamine. It's like the tigers are coming to eat you fear factor. And so again, it's something that's like not ultra pleasant. The conversation is a little bit tough because a lot of creative people have this feeling of having an empty well. And it's so scary to have something that's so important to who you are. Like your creativity is a pillar of your you know, identity. And then to show up when you need it and have an empty well is horrifying. So again, little cute mushrooms. <laughs> I drew... Um, because I use them as like a visual kind of representation of a thought or of a a metaphor that I'm using. And so the mushrooms are there because I'm like, you know, you have to look at where your steps are, you know, take small steps, look at where your feet are going, pay attention to the small steps, but don't like zoom in on the little mushroom on the forest floor and forget where you're going. So there's like a cute little mushroom in that paragraph. And, you know, so it's a thing that lightens it up, but it relates to what I'm talking about too. And then I tend to take those illustrations that are in an article like this and then make Instagram posts for them to refer people Mm. back to read the article. So the little mushroom that's going to go on Instagram will have a little, like that little piece of like, yeah, take care to look at the small steps. Because if you're just trying to do the whole journey in one leap, you'll not make it. But don't focus too hard on the cute little mushroom that you forget where you're going. So that's like the Instagram sort of bite-sized piece go take a look at the whole article if you want to see the rest, so to speak. I love it. I want to get to how you actually went about learning the skill <laughs> at some point. Uh, <laughs> but first, I, re- I kind of want to hear about your process. So I feel like now we have an understanding of how you came to understanding that this would be an important part of how you wanted to communicate, that this would help you um, share ideas with a world that is largely communicating visually, um, especially on the internet. Um, We have some examples of how you've done that. I would love to hear when you start thinking about putting an article together, putting an idea out there in writing, what kind of method are you using to find the visual that's going to go with it or the visuals that's going to go with it? I love that question. Okay, so I'm slightly obsessed with method and process. And Me I'm too. one of those. Oh, oh my gosh, we can talk all day. I have an appointment <laughs> in two hours. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I think I, I've, I'm one of those people who um, folks who see me working or who I talk to about my workflow and stuff are like, you're so organized. And I laugh and like, it's hilarious because those processes and like this really, really serious method that I have built is because of how unorganized my brain is. Um, Mm. So I need to build a really robust framework or I'm just going to be an amoeba kind of floating around because time doesn't exist. And, you know, I can't understand time. It doesn't, it's not real. Um, I might as well, yeah, mushroom, go and stare at the mushroom for 20 years before you go anywhere. Right. So So um, yeah, methods and processes are really important to me and I'm sort of obsessed with it. So when I, I do this like weird kind of hybrid because I use a writing process that's really important. And then I have an illustration process that's also really important, but the, like the creative feeling I need to have, the energy I need to have is different for the two different tasks and it's different for each step of the different tasks. So I'm going to try not hyper-focus and go for days talking about stuff that's really not important to anybody else's brain but mine. But basically, um, the way that I start with the article is with like the purpose. And with anything I create, I start with purpose. 
And for writers, your purpose involves like knowing your audience. There's an editorial purpose. And then there's the reader's purpose. Why are they coming to me? What do they want from this? What are they going to get from it? Because sometimes those aren't the same thing. What do I want as a writer to get across, but also as the editor? Because I'm both of those things, right? When I've mm-hmm. got, you know, when you're making content through the interwebs. Um, and so understanding all of those different purposes, and they're all inside of my like general purpose. And then I kind of play around with what ideas would meet those different purposes. And so in this, this particular one I was talking about, talking about resistance, I'm building a writing process um, or a writing practice kind of curriculum for people. So I'm, I want people to be able to build their writing practice. And there's certain pieces of it that are problematic. And one of them is dealing with resistance. Mm-hmm. And counter to that is, you know, building up a well of different motivations you can tap into. So we have to address the thing <laughs> that we're talking about. So I wanted to make a really good article for each of these kind of pieces. And so I'm like, all right, I need to talk about resistance. And then I start letting my brain play around with that idea. And I read a bunch and I do a bunch of research and I, you know, keep track of all my different stuff. And I have Trello upon Trello upon Notion upon other organizational things <laughs> to keep all of my stuff stored in. And I have, you know, researched articles for years. And I'm never going to have to research things again. But I will anyways, because I just love to do it. So totally. Right. And so I end up pinpointing one piece and then, you know, shaving away the extra, extra chapters because I'm not writing a book on resistance, I'm writing an article. And so (laughs) one point, Um, and then I do an outline that's really, really clear. And the outline is key. It's like a map for me, because I'll get lost without it. And in that outline, I've got like, it's like a simple, you know, five paragraph essay outline that I would have taught my kids when I taught high school. I've got my introduction, usually it's a story, that's how I roll. And then I've got three pieces that I need to hit in order to get there to teach the thing or to express the thing or whatever. And then I have my conclusion with like a call to action if there is one. So each of those three important pieces is going to have sub pieces. That's where my research comes in. That's where whatever tactic I'm using to express it, it comes in, but each of those will have a visual. Mm. So I often use metaphor because I'm a nonfiction writer who's obsessed with fiction Love it. Right. So metaphor everywhere, metaphor for days. I like my whole, you know, how to become, (laughs) how to figure out who you are when you're talking to people online is all like a Lord of the Rings metaphor that goes far too deep. And it's way too embarrassing (laughs) for my kids (laughs) when I'm like, no, I'm a Gandalf and it's fine. Samwise is the best character anyways. And they're like, mom, shut up. Um, But seriously, so metaphor usually ends up having a visual that's interesting and dichotomous to the message. And that kind of is what I like best is something that's inanimate because they're easier because I'm Mm -hmm. not, I'm not a pro. I mean, I do it for my work. So I guess theoretically I am pro, but I'm not exceptionally gifted, (laughs) you know, so I'm going to not do a really complicated illustration. My skills have grown as I use them. But inanimate objects are my comfort zone. So having that just like trigger image of something that I can both draw um, with my skills such as they are and that will feel like they go with my overall brand and the message that I'm trying to convey. So all of those things go together. And so while I'm building my outline for my writer self, I have a list of potential illustrations I can draw for each section for my artist self. So I'm almost building like, um, I don't know, I'm, I've lost the word immediately as soon as I was about to say, it. I'm almost building like, um, you know, a job description for the illustrator that works for me. Right. So, Got it. right. So I'm just like, you can draw this, 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 or this for each of these sections, do what works. And then when I'm in my kind of writing zone or in my drawing zone, which honestly happens a lot when I'm relaxing in front of Netflix with my older daughter in the evenings, sketching and drawing is a lot easier then, then obviously writing is hard to do when you're, when you're watching TV, it doesn't really work. So that as whatever ends up working, whatever ends up feeling the best and looking the best out of that um, brief, I guess that creative brief is what ends up going into the article. 
awesome. Thank you for sharing all of that. That is incredible. And I think it's going to be really helpful for people too. Um, I want to, the one more point I want to dig a little bit deeper in on your process, which is you mentioned metaphor everywhere, metaphor for days, I think is how you put it. Um, and I, this is something that I have given a lot of thought to over the last few years as I've tried to incorporate more storytelling and more examples into my own writing. And I think, and now working with other people, you know, I work with them on podcasting, but a lot of what I do is work with them on writing, right? Because mm -hmm. we're working together on scripts. And so it's something that I'm kind of thinking through with other people too. And so I'd love to hear your process for this. When you're coming up with those metaphors, is it like a bolt of lightning and it just hits you, oh, this is the perfect metaphor? Or do you have some sort of you know, set of questions or process for actually identifying, oh, this is a good way to communicate that? I think that, unfortunately, it's a bit of the bolt of lightning thing. Okay. Sorry. But, okay. It, <laughs> but I think there's ways to make the bolt happen, if that helps. Like, mm -hmm. um, lightning rods. I mean, here we go. Metaphor. Um, yes. Right? So it's part of it is because language, the way that language is built, warning, I'm about to go too far into this. The way the language is built is on metaphor as it is. So as you learn how, you know, one of like, studying linguistics and stuff, everything about an expansive library of words, like anytime that you have the ability to communicate in a language, it's because there are specific and general metaphors that you have grown to understand. So you can learn vocabulary and then you start to gain that cultural knowledge of like the way we see this world in language. And that's metaphor. And that's where you get all kinds of like idioms and stuff. And I think it's a hard part of learning a language. But once you know that stuff, that's when you're, you know, as good as native speaker in that language. So having the understanding of, of language itself as being just like a sea of metaphors that you're bobbing around in helps. Um, mm -hmm. Anytime that you're trying to explain something to someone your brain is trying to reach for something that will connect you to them. And so if I'm trying to explain, right. So as a teacher, um, I taught in university as well. So I did, I remember a specific lecture where I was discussing um, a short story of Alice Munro's feminist story. Okay. Canadian. I'm a Canadian. Um, and I did Camlet. That was my, like my major or whatever. Uh, concentration in my literature degree. So I'm discussing Alice Munro. I'm discussing this particular story of hers. And it's all about um, being, growing up as a daughter when the father wanted a son. And there's all sorts of symbols in the story that show her being locked into a role. And so I'm trying to describe what these different symbols are. And symbol, right? Like metaphor, metaphor, everything's mm -hmm. a metaphor. And I had <laughs> one of my students in that particular class was a woman who was 63 years old from the prairies of Canada, which is where this story was said. And another student in the same class, it was a small class, another student in the same class was a 21-year-old jock <laughs> <laughs> who somehow ended up taking Canadian literature class. And he just could not understand how the fox was a symbol for you know her being held in a role. He was just like, it's a fox. I don't understand it. And the 63 year old woman, I was trying to like, I was trying to get there for him. And yeah. I didn't know how I didn't know what piece could connect us. And this was me like, 12 or 13 years ago, I might be better to find that connection now. I mean, I've grown, I've aged, I've, you know, a little more humble too. like all kinds of different mm -hmm. things that make, make me better at finding those connections now than I was then. But the other student in the class, the woman who was 63 years old with that experience, with that understanding, was able to find a connection with him. And I don't remember. I wish I did. I don't remember what it was. It'd be such a better story if I did. But it was, <laughs> right? I could make it up, but I can't. So she was able to find something that connected their experiences outside of that place that the connection was missing. There was no way for him to be like, I get it, 63-year-old woman. I felt that way. Nope. There was no way for her to be like, I'm a 21-year-old jock who's going to university for free because of baseball and don't care about books at all. Like they just had nothing in that area. Mm -hmm. But she was able to find a piece that was outside of what they were talking about completely that they connected to. So that's what it's really about is finding something, recognizing metaphor helps a lot when there is a missing connection. 
And so you can recognize that this thing we're talking about right now, we don't have the language in common to be able to communicate understanding. But this other thing, we have language in common. Lord of the Rings, we have that in common. So I'm going to use that language to discuss finding your leadership skills, (laughs) right? I could use, you know, all kinds of like weird self-help-ish language, but that's not going to make the same kind of impact. If you already understand all of the things that go along with this whole pocket of language that goes with the Lord of the Rings, then you're going to understand this way better if I take the pieces of that language that connect to the idea I know, and then give you the idea I know in this language you already understand. So helpful. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) I love that because it's so clearly connected to what we're ostensibly what we're here to talk about today, which is how you learned illustration skills. And it is also so helpful from a writing perspective, from any kind of communication. Like you said, it like revolves around this shared understanding of the metaphors that we swim in every single day. Um, And it, it makes so much sense, too, as to then how you landed on illustration as a way to become a better communicator even than you already were. So let's get back to that. (laughs) We could talk about the linguistics and all of that stuff, like you said, all day long. You'll hear more from Chris Windley in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by the What Works Network. So you've got your business up and running. Heck, maybe it's been up and running for years. And now you're ready to make it better, stronger, more sustainable, and far less likely to cause you headaches. But where do you even start? Do you learn another marketing tactic? Do you build out another offer? Give your website yet another makeover? Eh, probably not. Once things are up and running, the best thing you can do is build out a plan, a strategy, and a practice of making your business stronger one small step at a time. And that's where the What Works Network comes in. We're not here to teach you how to start a business, and we're not even here to tell you what you should do with your business next. Instead, we provide the very real tools, conversations, and explorations you need to figure out what's going to work for you when it comes to everything from marketing to management to mindset. We help seasoned small business owners tackle the everyday challenges of running a business while also asking big questions to help you make sense of your next steps. When you join us, you lock in one year of business building support in our truly unique community. You also get instant access to the Stronger Business Playbook, a set of plug and play tools you can use to make your business immediately stronger, as well as access to Subtle, our program for adopting a new framework for thinking about your business. You also get our weekly support events, our quarterly virtual conferences, and a monthly deep dive into key topics like systems, planning, building an audience, developing offers, and more. We're now accepting new members of the What Works Network, and this is your last chance to lock in our current membership fee before the price doubles at the end of the month. Get all the details and lock in today's membership fee before August 31st by going to explorewhatworks.com slash network. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. It's the perfect time to simplify your business and your life. Creating content, building a movement, and leading a community, it's hard work. But it doesn't have to mean hassling with a host of software services, social media platforms, and customer management systems. Mighty Networks is the simple way to bring people together, deliver high-quality content, and spread your message, all while making your business easier to run, too. Mighty Networks combines key functions like building a community, online course management, content creation, networking, events, and payment processing so that you have an all-in-one platform for running your business. We use Mighty Networks to power the What Works Network. We offer a behind-the-scenes look at podcast interviews, host members-only events, help members support each other, and facilitate ongoing conversations about important topics. It's 
so much simpler than the collection of apps we've cobbled together before. Start simplifying your life and business while providing a top-notch experience to your customers with Mighty Networks. Get started free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. All right. So let's back way up. Once you decided, all right, illustration is something that I really want to explore, something I want to add into my communication toolkit. How did you go about even getting started with that learning process? Wow. Okay. So it was it was a while ago that I started and it was bumpy <laughs> to get started. I mean, I took like fine arts classes in university as electives and stuff. And, um, but that's a totally different thing from mm-hmm. developing digital illustrations. Like sketching with pencil is not the same as getting it onto the computer screen. It's just, there's so many pieces in between. And it was long enough ago that the tech stuff has developed unbelievably in the last few years and made it so much easier. The workflow is completely different now from what it was when I began, but I was working with um, another business owner whose forte was visual stuff. She was a photographer. Um, She did website designs. We ended up working together doing like web copy me and her doing the web development or design stuff. Um, and photography for clients and stuff. So we had a partnership going and she really wanted to be able to write better. So I was helping to teach her writing skills and helping her to develop an editing and revision workflow. And she was helping me with photography and web design and stuff. So she kind of helped me to feel more comfortable touching the tech piece to get it from my like Luddite charcoal on paper version to the computer screen, like magic. So it was really a really awkward kind of process. At first I found Adobe has a capture app on that you can use on your phone where you have to line up and kind of take a photo of your line drawing. And then it captures it as a shape. And then you have to Mm. upload it to Adobe illustrator And it would take me, Tara, hours and I would become obsessed with because in Illustrator, it's like all of these little points create the line Mm -hmm. and the lines create the shape. So the line, the simple, beautiful, easy looking cartoon line of my illustration was thousands and thousands of little points that I had to move and become obsessively hyper-focused with. And like days later, my cramped little neck would come up from the computer screen and it'd be like, that's a good circle you made Um, (laughs) three, you know, hours and hours later. So that was the initial process. It sucked, but it was cool because it was new. And once Mm -hmm. I get that like little piece of the initial um, immediate gratification of like you had a win, you did a thing and it wasn't terrible that gives me the boost to keep on going. And I get, you know, I obsessively learn about the thing. So I did that for a while. And it was like, it got to the place where it was, the newness was gone. So the headache of the workflow started to become a bigger problem. And at that time, Procreate started to become a thing, which is a piece of software that, Mm -hmm. you know, if any listeners don't know what it is, it's 2020. (laughs) It's everywhere, guys. Um, but it's something that you can use on your iPad with an Apple Pencil. And you can draw basically on the tablet. And it's like, ta-da, it's digital. Yeah, <laughs> It happened already. So there's little pieces with that. You know, it, it's like, it's not the same quality, whatever. But for the illustrations that go into my articles and that go onto Instagram, it's amazing. And that's something that I just started doing this year is using that. So the biggest learning curve thing for me has been the workflow so far. Mm-hmm. Now that the workflow, the practice piece of it is starting to become smoother, it's starting to make more sense to me, it's starting to become almost habitual or second nature. Now I'm starting to look at like, okay, skill development, it's the same process as learning writing. Like the practice piece is your first piece, get your resources, get your workflow, get your materials in place. And then you can start to say, oh, right, here's a skill vacuum you need to fill. Mm -hmm. perhaps you should take a Skillshare class on how to draw a face instead of crying about it all the time. And (laughs) like, you know, get over the fact that it's not easy. Everything isn't always easy for you, Chris. Sometimes things are hard and it's going to be fine. Just do the work. It will get easier. 
So that's where I am right now. I'm past the workflow hiccups a little bit. And I'm like Mm -hmm. looking at, okay, so skill development time. And it's cool. It's interesting. Um, It's humbling. (laughs) Yeah, well, so I'm curious about that piece because I think for so many people, when things get hard, they're, well, they're hard at the beginning and then they get easier and then they get hard again, right? And anytime things are hard, we have a hard time, especially as adults, moving through them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've mentioned um, your ADHD. And I think that, you know, for different people with all different kinds of brain chemistries and makeups mm-hmm. and and thought patterns, like we all kind of, we all approach that a little bit differently. But I'd love to hear from your perspective, what are you doing like what's going on in your head? What are you telling yourself to move through those places where you would rather sit there crying, <laughs> you know, that you can't draw a face? Um, like, yeah, what's what's going on in your head as you kind of move yourself through those periods? Okay, um, I think three things. I'm going to probably forget the third one by the time I get back to it, but three things. Totally understand that. Right thing one is... I have my oldest daughter, she'll be 21 in January, which strikes me as impossible, but it's the way that it is. Um, And she has, she has cerebral palsy and Mm. um, has had significant difficulties with all kinds of stuff that most people take for granted. And she also has the type of personality um, that tends toward uh, just being thrilled with the world around her, which is wildly endearing. Um, it's weird for a mom to be like, why in the hell are you so happy? (laughs) I am really mad about this on your behalf and you should also be mad. Um, but things are more difficult for her than for me in a lot of areas. Some things are easier for her than me, like all the time with a smiling. Um, but one of the things that we have gotten accustomed to are the 21 years that she's been my sidekick We've, been accustomed, we've become accustomed to saying is, I know it's really hard. Luckily, you can do hard things. And she can. Like, she's one of those really cool people who's like, um, you know, her MRIs, we roll into a doctor's office when she was five or six, and they would look at their charts, and they'd look at her, and they'd look at their charts again and be like, this brain shouldn't be walking. And she was in a tutu doing a pirouette. You know what I mean? Like, a clumsy one, but with a giant grin and all the sparkles. So she's one of those people whose brain is just like the elasticity in there. It's just so tremendous um, that she proves it over and over again, which is both motivating for those of us watching and kind of following along and slightly demotivating because it's like, (laughs) sometimes I do want to cry about space being hard to draw. Like that's important too, please. Um, So that's one of the pieces is this just like mindset of being like, this is hard and it sucks. But at the same time that that truth exists, the truth exists that I can do hard things. And that's really helpful. So that's thing one. Um, thing two is that um, we get, there's like ceilings of ease and difficulty. And okay, there's a meta- metaphor brewing. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we're in like, in an apartment building. And, you know, we're trying to go up to the top. The top is like peak professional, amazing capabilities, right? And to get from one floor to the next is hard. And when we get to the next floor, it's difficult being there for a while. Uh, You have to get used to it. You're still working on it. It's not easy. But then you get there and you're comfortable and you kind of like want to hang out for a bit. But it gets boring and you want to move on. So we just keep Mm -hmm. doing this movement upwards or whatever. And it's okay for you to stay in on one floor for a while. Like if that serves you, if you're getting everything you need from it, cool, like hang out. You don't need to go anywhere right now. But if you realize that there is something you need on floor 19 and you're on floor 17 and you like need to get there, then you have a reason to go through the hard where it's not going to be make it easier, but it's going to make it worth it. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's thing two. Holy crap. I remember thing three. This is amazing. So (laughs) thing three (laughs) is that, you know, you decide to go to the place where it's hard. 
you go up, you know, you find the flight of stairs, you go to the elevator, whatever, we'll find the metaphor piece that works for it. You get to the floor where it's difficult, that's difficult for you to exist. You start to learn the things that make it easier for you. And you can hang out there long enough to understand how you got there and sort of turn around and hand that off to someone else, which makes it easier for you to keep moving upward. It's a thing that happens with teaching. I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher, so there's reasons. It's, teachers are amazing people. Like my parents are both teachers. My sister's a teacher. Teachers in general, phenomenal human beings. I don't say this as being like, I'm an amazing person because I'm a teacher. No, I'm not a classroom teacher anymore because also it's impossible. It's the hardest thing in the world. So teachers are really cool. They do a lot of stuff because it's good for the world. But also there's a really cool feedback loop. And one of the things that happens Mm -hmm. in that when you're teaching someone is that it becomes clearer for you. And in figuring that connection out, right, like finding that metaphor, finding that way to connect to this idea to someone else, you find it for yourself too. So if you're struggling to get up those stairs and you're looking around and there's somebody else who's also struggling to get there, you're like, hey, this is a thing I figured out. Oh, I did figure that out. Like you almost didn't know you knew it until you tried to explain it to somebody else. So I find that that is a really helpful piece. Like the sort of stuff that goes together is that mindset of being like, this is going to be hard, but I can do hard things. So that's okay. And then the other piece being like, uh, yeah, but maybe it doesn't need to be hard yet. Like you don't actually need to do the hard thing right now. So don't like relax. Don't try to get to the top because the top is somehow better than not top. That's not true. The top is better if what you need is there. And then this other piece of being like the learning process is also the teaching process and let it be something that's not just about yourself. Like it takes the stakes away somehow, like it makes them lower stakes. And then you're not sitting there with that feeling of like tigers are going to eat me fight or flight about needing to learn this thing. You're looking around, you know, looking across the campfire or whatever, and you're like, hey, guys, all of us should be aware tigers exist. Let's work together on making it easy to not get eaten by them. And it and it becomes less like the stakes are lower. And that makes it just easier to learn. Like it's easy to learn when you're not afraid. That's brain science. That's the truth. So do what you can to not be afraid of the thing that you don't know how to do. Gold. Just (laughs) gold. I do have a couple more questions. Like I'm tempted to just be like, no, we're going to leave it there. That was brilliant. (laughs) But I have a couple of other nuts and bolts questions. Mm -hmm. One of which is simply, what do you do to practice? So as you're kind of leveling up, as you're working on skills, as you're learning how to draw a face, what what is your process for practicing? So the face, um, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Okay. That's on like, that's like three floors up. I'm not there yet. It's okay. I don't need it yet. I will. I will. Just not today. Um, So one of the things that I do, honestly, is that I piggyback it with um, something that I'm good at, right? Like this is the, this is why it works really nicely for me in my process is that writing is innately easy for me. Mm -hmm. Um, As you can tell, a little verbose, got like words galore. They just come out. So I connect it to something that already makes sense to me. And every time that I want to publish an article, I got to draw some stuff for it. So it's just something that I do regularly when I'm trying to share stuff with the world. And I get a lot of my vote. A lot of my motivation to do my work comes from people receiving it. Um, That's where Mm -hmm. most of my motivation comes from. I get like after the fact when people are like, oh, I loved the way you said that. I'm just like, "Mm," like, eat it, eat it, eat it for lunch. And that's all I live off of. So knowing that sharing things visually, especially on Instagram, um, the more people will be able to receive it and they'll get it. It just drives me to do the thing. So that's really, that's really the key thing is just for projects I'm doing. I would get better faster if I were drawing every day, I know this for a fact because that's Mm -hmm. how learning works, right? Practice is better if you just do it all the time, but I write every day and that's my like number one skill that I'm developing. So illustration, it's that stakes thing that I said, like the stakes for illustration are not as high. I don't need to illustrate an entire book. I need to write one. 
So that, right. So that's the thing that I'm working on day in and day out. And I can hold like, this is a thing that's hard at the beginning of learning a new skill for those of us who have a skill that is highly developed. And I can say that because I'm 40 years old. I went to school for a million years. I still owe money on it. Will forever. I know that my writing voice is mature. I know that those skills are far higher than the average bear. I know that I can teach people how to do it really well. I know this and I'm confident in it and it can exist in a world where my illustration skills are not the best. And that's, that's okay. (laughs) It's real hard for some of us. If you're accustomed to being the best in the room at something, it's really hard to go into a different room where you're not, and you're not ever going to be like, I'm the best illustration in a very small room. Right. And most of the people in that room don't even draw anything. They're just like, that's neat that you can do that. And I'm like, I can't do it very well, but thanks. Um, so it's okay that I don't practice it every day. I know it would be better. I know I'd be drawing faces like crazy. I know that it would be so I would have so much more freedom with it because I have ideas mm-hmm. of things I'd love to create visually, but I just don't have the skill to get there yet. But I don't need to rely on that as my number one skill. It's like my back pocket skill and it's doing well. It's great at its job. And I can let it not be the most, excuse me, the most important thing in my sort of tool belt or whatever. I don't know if that helps. It's like practice every day, but except don't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I, I think that, I think that helps a lot. And I think what you said about, you know, kind of coping with having both a very highly developed skill, something that you have a lot of ease and facility with at the same time that you are working through something that feels a lot thicker, (laughs) stickier, (laughs) um, is I think it's very, uh, I think a lot of people can relate to that. And I am very much um, in awe of people who do that gracefully. <laughs> and so whether you feel like you do it gracefully or not, you have represented to it to us very gracefully. And for that, I am very, very grateful. <laughs> I'm not called graceful often. I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> so as we do start to wrap up here, um, I'm curious, like, what are your future plans for this skill? You mentioned that, you know, there's things you'd like to be able to do. Do you have a particular project or a particular idea that you are working toward right now with the skill? Yeah, actually, I because what I do in my business, my day job is um, teach and support people who are also writing. So I write a lot. But I also do this thing where I teach and support people who are writing. And um, so I'm creating and I'm there's something about when you when you work in um, theories and you work and you'll understand this because you do this, too. When you work in a world of thought, um, everything feels sort of ethereal and it's like you can't really touch Mm -hmm. any of the stuff that you make. And it's hard sometimes to really understand that it exists. So you do do all of this work um, and it just kind of exists in people's heads all over the place, which is very cool, but also really hard um, to put your finger on. And sometimes you need to be able to do that. And so I've wanted to, for years, have some physical products to offer to people mostly so that I could have something in my hands and be like, I made this thing. It exists now and it didn't yesterday. Um, because that feels good when you're, you know, generally you're manufacturing stuff that doesn't really exist. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm doing some like posters and some basically learning aid stuff to start by helping folks who are my like writer people, my adore and whose voices are necessary to feel the kind of happy joy pieces of it. Um, because like I said, that's what the illustrations tend to be cute and fun and live in a world of like simplicity, um, where people who are learning how to share their voices, particularly ladies, because I work with, um, women, women identifying writers generally, it's complicated. It's not simple. It's really hard and it's dark. It's not like bright red and teal and cute typewriters and, you know, polka dotted mugs and stuff. It's hard and it's not pleasant. 
So I want to create things for us to have around ourselves that are cute, pleasant, like just because fun is a good enough reason. So I'm doing that. And it's weird because of this stuff of like the imposter syndrome stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's weird to create something using your back pocket skill when you've been creating something with your like front pocket skill. I don't know if that metaphor fell, but <laughs> they're not all winners. But it's it's weird to be having used a skill that you're really confident with for two decades to now be creating something almost solely with something that you're not as strong at. It's tough, but exciting. So that's kind of what I'm working on. I'm like making journals and um, I have prompts that people use to develop their writing practice. So I'm going to have like, you know, sticker versions of those prompts for people to put in their notebooks and everything, because it's hard, like learning things is hard. So I want it to be fun. And also I want to make fun things. So that's what I'm doing with it. That's awesome. Well, uh, you may have already just answered this question, but the last question I always ask everyone is what are you excited about right now? I think that, yeah, I'm excited about yeah. making some real life things that I can um, like clutter my physical life with a little bit because it's really cool to do theoretical work. It's what I'm made for, but um, I want to be, yeah, I want to be able to touch something. I want to be able to hold something in my hand and know that I made it happen. So yeah, I'm excited about that right now, I think. Incredible. Chris Winley, thank you so much for giving us a look inside your learning process, inside your writing and drawing practice. And um, I'm just so grateful for everything that you've shared with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Anytime. I'd love to come back and chat some more some other time. Listening back to this conversation, I can see how so many threads got pulled in my own brain as we unpacked the differences between visual learning and visual teaching, wanting instant gratification for our efforts and thinking in metaphors. I was transfixed by this conversation when Chris and I originally had it, and I'm even more so today. Find out more about Chris Windley at withakwriting.com. Next week, I've got a few more stories about leveraging our strengths in unexpected ways. And in September, we're doing a much requested series on systems. We're talking project management systems, sales systems, creative process systems, and more. Be sure to subscribe or follow what works in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of those episodes. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Emily Kilduff is our production assistant. Marty Seafelt edits our episodes. And Sean McMullen keeps all the gears turning in the Yellow House Media machine. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples. And the Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Katunaha Nation. Mm-hmm.